please stand for the reading of the Gospel? And actually, uh, I didn't have time after being on vacation to find a scripture reader, so you're going to do it. Uh, we're going to do a congregational scripture reading on the Lord's Prayer, which is, happens to be our sermon text. So let's pray this together, and it's going to go like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to release our children to go to Children's Church, uh, fifth grade and below. And uh, just allow me to pray for those kiddos before we let them go. Father, again, we thank you for the gift of children and uh, know how precious they are in your sight. And um, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and grace to, to treat them how you'd want us to treat them, to be able to communicate the mysteries of your love and goodness to them. Uh, Lord, I pray for our teachers who are giving of their time uh, to love on your children, and just pray that you give them insight in how to communicate and patience, and Lord, may our kids just be filled with the knowledge of your love. In Christ's name, amen. This is where I belong. It's good to be back. I, I like the Oregon Coast, but this is good. Um, yeah, so this summer we have been diving into the Lord's Prayer. I just, again, just to reiterate why we're doing this, just felt the Lord telling, telling me and us as a church, slow down, go deep with me, uh, meet me in prayer. And what better way to do that than the, the, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? Uh, I don't know if you've ever felt like, I don't quite know where to start in prayer. I don't know even where to begin. Well, you just can't go wrong with the Lord's Prayer. I mean, after all, Jesus taught us how to do it. Uh, so, so far we have looked at the first two two petitions, we've recognized God as Father, as our intimate Abba Father, the one who is in the heavens, which means that He's very close. The heavens are all around us, and at the same time, the heavens are other than earth. So God is very holy and very close and accessible at the same time. We prayed that His kingdom would come, that literally His good reign would break into our world and usurp every area of injustice and, in and darkness and evil. And this evening, we're going to look at the third petition. Our Father, who is in heaven, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now think about that for just a moment. What does it mean to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And just to make it more real, I want you to think about maybe a decision that you're stuck right now in trying to make. Maybe think about a circumstance you're in that you cannot control. What does it mean? What does it make you feel like inside to say, Lord, your will be done in this situation? Got one? Okay. Honestly. You don't have to say it out loud. What goes through your mind when you say, God, your will be done? 
few weeks ago, I saw a post on Facebook. I'm not going to say who, there's no one in this church, but uh, there's a, someone on there that said, my life is going really well right now. Should I be happy or should I be worried about what God's going to bring into my life next? When you pray, Father, who is in heaven, your will be done, what goes through your mind? Do you grit your teeth and prepare for the worst? Do you just throw up your hands in resignation, resignation and say, whatever, your will be done? Or, if you're like me, you try and rationalize everything you want to do into being God's will. Maybe you don't fit into any of those categories, and that's a great thing. But most of us, at some time or another, run into the problem of doubting that God's will is relevant for us, doubting that God's will is really the best thing for us. And this has been a human problem since the very beginning. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden started off on great terms with God. They used to walk in the garden with God and talk with God and have beautiful, unbroken relationship with Him. But somewhere along the line, a lie was introduced, a doubt was introduced. And it made them think, maybe God doesn't have my best interests in mind. Maybe I know how to do life better than He does. And we've been living with this problem ever since. Now, in the few counseling classes I've taken, I learned something that you all already know, that the source of the main source of anger in our lives is when our will conflicts with somebody else's, right? When wills conflict. Now, it's very easy to be a person of peace when you're a hermit or you're living by yourself. And, but as soon as you have expectations or as soon as you come into conflict with somebody else and, and your wills clash, then anger can arise. Now, frankly, anger can be kind of entertaining, right? Like, what would a boxing match be if the boxers didn't hate each other and want to smash each other's faces? Or what would a football game be if the teams didn't want to both win at the same time? What would Star Wars be if Darth Vader didn't want to impose his will on the galaxy? Come on! Now, one of the most incredible displays of clashing wills I have ever seen happened at Costco about a year and a half. And no, it wasn't people competing for parking spots on a holiday weekend, and it wasn't fighting over those, that really good artichoke dip samples. And it wasn't that either. The most incredible clashing of wills I ever saw happened in the parking lot with my wife trying to shoehorn a two-year-old into her car seat. Now, all of you that just had kids, trust me, between somewhere 18 months to two and a half, you're going to find this problem where your kid all of a sudden realizes, I don't want to be in my car seat. And I'm telling you, Sophia arched her back, was frothing at the mound like, uh, mouth like a rabid dog. Uh, you would have thought Corey was trying to get her to eat diapers. She was just not having it. And it's so ridiculous when you think of the logic. Here's a mother who knows best for her daughter, putting her in this safety seat. And might I add, a very plushly upholstered seat. Much better than the seat I get to drive in. But for some reason, she thought that wasn't best for her life. And she needed a will adjustment. She needed a will adjustment. I wonder if sometimes we think negatively about God's will for our lives because we don't really believe He knows what's best. Maybe His will just isn't relevant in 2009. 
Well, I think the only way to make an informed decision about this is to look at just what is God's will. I confess, I'm speaking about this in the genre of a sermon, right? So, like, I don't have time to talk about all of God's will. I'm not saying this facetiously, but if you want to know God's will, read the whole Bible. (laughs) But what I'm going to try and do this evening is talk about maybe four main aspects of how to discern God's will. So, number one, if you're a note-taker, if you want to know God's will, look at why we were created in the first place. If you want to know God's will, look at why we were created in the first place. We were created to bear God's image, His likeness, His creativity, his caring for the earth, to be an intimate, to be an intimate relationship with God and to be an intimate relationship with each other. Right relatedness. We are the apples of God's eye. Let me just say that more directly. You are the apple of God's eye. Ephesians 2 says that we are His workmanship. Literally in the Greek, His, his poetry, His work of art. When we create music, write books, produce film, take students out on youth dynamics adventures, when we produce uh, buildings, when we design computer programs, when we care for creation, serve the needy, plant gardens, when we explore our surroundings, when we do these things for the glory of God, we're doing God's will. St. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said, the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God, and back then it was kind of chauvinistic, so the glory of God is human beings fully alive. Now in the the midst of uh, being at the ocean and different nap times and all that, I did break away a few times to pray and read Scripture. And one day I was outside of the house and the sun was shining through the trees and I, I heard a fluttering. And so I put my Bible down and I noticed a hummingbird, a little golden hummingbird, whizzing from wildflower to wildflower. Most beautiful little bird. Just being a hummingbird. And I thought, God smiles on that hummingbird. That is God's will because that hummingbird is being a hummingbird. What does it mean for you to be fully alive? How's God wired you? How's He gifted you? What are your passions? You fully alive? That's God's will. Which leads into number two. If God's will for us is to live in right relatedness with Him and right relatedness with each other, then God's will for us is to live the Sermon on the Mount. Now remember, the Lord's Prayer, the text that we're looking at today, is smack dab in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. So when we're studying Scripture, we have to look at literary context. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. The Lord's Prayer is right in the middle of chapter 6. So here's one thing that we might say. When we pray, our Father who is in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we might also pray, our Father who is in heaven, your sermon on the mount be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. So, if that's true, here's some of God's will. That we would be salt and light. That means that we would be reflections of God, adding flavor to our culture, spicing things up, giving voice to deeds and deeds of hope in Christ. It also means that we would live lives of reconciliation instead of anger and seeking revenge. It means that we would see each other as daughters and sons of God, not as sexual objects to be used for our own pleasure. It means if you are in a married relationship that you would have fidelity. It means that your word would mean something, that your yes would be yes, and that your no would be no. If you want to know God's will, spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount. Third, if we want to know God's will, we need look no further than Jesus the Christ. After all, He's the only one ever to fully live the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. Jesus lived to do the Father's will. You might recall just a few weeks ago, um, I preached on the woman at the well. And Jesus was there talking with her, and His disciples had gone to a village to buy food. And when they got back, they realized that Jesus was too involved with this woman to even eat. And they said, did He get food that we don't know about? And Jesus says that, the, that doing the will of the Father is His food. Doing the will of the Father is His food. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. That word that Jesus uses for food there is not like the appetizer. It's not the salad. It is the main staple meal. So for Jesus, doing God's will is, is not peripheral. It's not something you do on top of the stuff that you feel like doing. It's what He's on about with His life. Jesus shows us that the Father's will is for us to be filled with the God life. That we would be bubbling up like springs of living water. That we would gush out the God life onto all people around us. And all of this, again, is for God's glory. For the hallowing of His name. And you're starting to see a trend here, right? When God's kingdom breaks in, when His will is done, His name is made more holy, more famous. And so we're accomplishing, or that Lord's Prayer is being accomplished. And the fourth observation. Jesus tells us that this is the Father's will. And I'm quoting John 6, 38-40. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me. Listen up now. That of all He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. God's will for us is to know Jesus. To know Jesus leads to awe and love for Him. And once you're at that stage, it's all about trusting in Him for eternal life. Eternal Zoe life. Remember we talked about that word, that Greek word that means life everlasting. And it's not just life as you and I know it forever. You know, for some of us, that would be like hell. If my body with my busted up knee, if I had to keep this knee forever, that would not be cool. Uh, 
or for those with disabilities or those with deep emotional hurts. Guess what? Eternal life includes a new transformed body. That's the promise of resurrection. This is God's will for you and I. Eternal life in Christ. These are just four observations about God's will. But I think that we can say with some confidence at this point that God's will is good. God's will is good. In in fact, the word Jesus uses in His prayer for your will be done, that word for will is the Greek word philema. Philema. You know what that word means? Good pleasure. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your good pleasure be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your good pleasure. The big issue I see when I look in the mirror and when I look at our world is that we just don't recognize the full goodness and grandeur of our God. We don't trust the goodness of God's will. And that's why we tend to barricade ourselves in. We try and plan so well for the future to protect ourselves with comfort so we don't run out of the things that we're trying to hoard. One reason I think that we need a will alignment is that our wills are too small, too weak. We don't recognize that we are loved by the living God of the universe. C.S. Lewis sums it up so nicely, and this is on the front of your bulletin if you want to read it. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink, sex, and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. We set up expectations for ourselves that are way smaller than anything God would have for us. And when we don't get those expectations met, we get angry, we get depressed. Our Father in Heaven is trying to give us His good pleasure. He's trying to care for us in His best way. And we're acting like two-year-olds, arching our backs and resisting the car seat. And this leads to the genius of Jesus' prayer. A theme that runs throughout this whole prayer that you're going to get sick of me saying, but I will harp on every week. This prayer is not asking that God would help us do His will. This prayer says, Our Father who is in heaven, and it's in the imperative form, it's a respectful way of saying, do your will. It's Jesus gives us permission to speak to the Father in an imperative. This is unheard of. We are begging God for Him to do His will on earth as it is in heaven. And if His will is as good as I've just described, that is awesome news. We're crying out that our loving and approachable, our good and powerful Heavenly Father will do His will on earth as it is in heaven. And why? Because when my will is done, and when your will is done, 99% of the time does not line up with God's will. And that leads to sin. It leads to pain. 
It leads to racism. It leads to war, injustice, shame, guilt, and ultimately death. That's what happens when my will is done. The older I get, the more I realize I do not really understand what's best for me, or my family, or for you. But the more we pray this prayer, the more God shapes our character the more He reveals His will to us. This prayer can change the world because it can change every human heart. And that's how the world has changed, I think. Oftentimes, one heart at a time. So as we pray this prayer, we become aware of how we don't live the Sermon on the Mount. And we pray, Your will be done in my marriage. Your will be done in my use of time. Your will be done in my use of your resources. Your will be done in how I treat your planet. Your will be done in what I allowed my mind to dwell on and my eyes to gaze upon and my stomach to consume. Oh God, save me from my will. It's either too small to bring abundant life or too wicked to sustain life. Oh God, bring your will. And I'm just getting started. And don't forget, this is all phrased, Our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. This is not a personal prayer. We cannot help but pray this prayer in a community sense. Our Father, not Chris's Father or Jeannie's Father. Our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your good pleasure be done on earth, which is a much bigger place than the lettered streets, isn't it? On earth as it is in heaven. So, may your will be done in city politics, in state congress, in U.S. Supreme Court. May your will be done in national governments. May your will be done in countries that are experiencing genocide and slavery. May your will be done in our economics, in our ethics, in our education systems around the world. May your will be done in China, in Congo, in India, in England. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As Tilika says, this prayer spans the world. Now, as a preacher who is also a pastor, I cannot help but see your faces when I prepare to speak. And I know that there are many of you wrestling with decisions right now. And if you're like me, the decisions come up. You want to know, what is God's will for my life? Now, if you come and ask me, should I murder someone? That's pretty easy. No, Scripture says don't do that. If you want to know, should I give money to the poor? Yep, Scripture says do that. But there are a lot of ethical situations or a lot of decisions we make in 2009 that aren't in the red letters or the black letters in the Bible, right? What if you're wondering who to date? What job to choose? Where to live? What if you're looking at two seemingly good options? Or worse yet, three or four. What is God's will in those safe cases? So what I've done is just compiled some different sources. The two main sources, uh, Albert Hasse and J.I. Packer. All right? And I've given you, some of you personally, the Packer stuff. But if you're a note taker, here's how I'm going to outline this so you save room. 
I'm going to give us three positive steps to discerning God's will and six pitfalls to look out for. Okay? Three positive steps and six pitfalls. Step number one is the awareness step. Awareness. We pray. First of all, let me stop right there. We pray. It's going to be really tough to discern God's will if we don't pray. We worship the living God. Living God, who still speaks today. We pray for God to help us see where our decision might be clouded by the blinders of self-preservation, self-image, self-gratification, self-fill-in-the-blank. But self is a real problem sometimes. So we pray that God would show us in this awareness stage where we might be blinded by ourself. Wise Christian counsel is so helpful here. This is not just me and the Bible going into a corner. Because crazy cults happen when that happens, right? Uh, You can make the Bible say anything you want in isolation. But wise Christian counsel can help you see your blind spots. Oh, how people have helped me see my blind spots. Thank God for other people who have helped me see how stupid I can be. So here's a powerful question for the awareness stage. Will my decision cause me to violate a commitment that I've already made to God, other people, or myself? Will this decision I'm making cause me to violate a commitment I've already made to God, others, or myself? Okay. Step number two, the assessment phase. This is the evaluation stage where you think through your options and and see if they line up with Scripture. Now, I know I just said, this is for those of you who don't have like things that are right in Scripture, like who do I date? It doesn't say right in Scripture who you should date. But is there a guiding principle in Scripture that might help? So here are some questions you might ask in the assessment phase. Is each option equally loving and charitable? Is each option equally loving and charitable? Which option would most uh, meet a need in society or the church or the world? Which option might most meet a need in society, the church, or the world? And finally, do I have what it takes to see this decision through. This is one I think as evangelicals we sometimes skip over too quickly. We think, you know, God's will is always going to be really tough and horrible and uh, whether or not I feel like doing it or not doesn't matter. Let me give you an example. (laughs) I didn't think I wanted to be where I am right now. Uh, I've said this before, who, those of you who have been around a while with me, I'm a reluctant church planter. As I was finishing up grad school, I thought, I want to be a pastor of a, of a smaller church that's established, and I can just come in there and just be comfortable, and not that pastoral ministry is ever comfortable, but I, I, I can wrap my mind around that, and I thought, well, that's what I want. But God kept opening up these ideas, these progressive ideas towards church planting. 
I was an unwilling church planter. But as I listened, I realized I do want to plant this church. It scares the heck out of me. But I want to do this, and I'm deeply passionate about it. You know what? With God's help, I do have what it takes to see this thing through. I might crash and burn, but I'm going to do it with everything I've got. So passion really does have something to do with it. If God's will is for you to do something, if He gives you a call or a direction, He will see you through it. And it may not be easy. I'm not saying that. It may not be easy. It probably won't be. Do you have what it takes to see it through? And finally, the third step is action. You've gone through the first two stages. You've listened to wise Christian counsel. You've lined things up against Scripture. And you need to make a decision. I think that sometimes, and this is depending on what tradition you're from, your background, sometimes we're waiting for the lightning bolt the burning bush, the handwriting on the wall. We're waiting for this out-of-body, ethereal experience. This, you hear people say, I just had a piece about it, and I knew it was the right decision. Hear me. The living God still speaks. If God wants to send you an email and give you the directions on what to do with your life, He can do that. I do not, I do not doubt that in the least. But we live in the age of the Spirit. After Pentecost, God has given every believer the Holy Spirit. And with the Spirit comes the mind of Christ, the ability to discern Scripture, the right and actually the duty to speak truth into each other's lives. So it's a fallacy to think that it's just me and God, me and the Bible, me and lightning bolts telling me what to do. God has given us quite a resource. You know what that resource is? They're sitting all around you. It's men and women who are of the book, of the Scripture, who are reading in the Spirit, and who can speak truth into your life. There are several times in my life when I have felt that feeling that I can't describe, when God has all but written on the wall for me. I do not discount that. But it has always been in conjunction with wise counsel. Always been in conjunction with Scripture and never contradicted Scripture. So, we act. We act in faith. After all, that's what the Christian life is. It's a life of faith. If God gave us burning bushes and wrote on the wall every time, we would no longer be living by faith, but by sight. Alright, so those are three positive actions that we can take. Now there are six pitfalls as well. This is straight out of J.I. Packer's Knowing God. I'm totally giving all the credit right here. This is no Chris in this right now. But this is pretty awesome. I just can't make it up any better than this. First of all, number one pitfall is an unwillingness to think. It's an unwillingness to think. It's the total resignation route where we just say, Oh God, your will be done. And I'm not going to put any more effort into it than that. Now, there are times when you go through those first three stages and you are stumped. And you just need to say, God, your will be done. And that's okay. But that is not a license to laziness. One of our greatest gifts that God has given us is reason. The ability to go to the Scriptures. The ability to spend time on our knees in prayer. The ability to go to God. And so, unwillingness to think is not okay. That's one of the main pitfalls. 
Number two is related to number one, and it's unwillingness to weigh the long-term consequences of our actions. Unwillingness to weigh the long-term consequences of our actions. There was a time when middle through grad school, I was just so confused about what I wanted to do. I was just so in a place of like dryness spiritually. And I was thinking, what am I going to do with all this debt when I get out? I, I, I don't know what. But, oh, you know what? I've got over eight years' experience with reserve time in the Coast Guard. So if I became a Navy chaplain, I could retire in just like 12 more years. With and I started to think, oh... That's a great starting salary, better than any pastor I know makes, and uh, full benefits, and we could live in cool places. And I started to just rationalize and think this idea up, and oh, how I can convince, right? So I convinced Corey that this is probably best for us. You know what I wasn't doing? I was not weighing the long-term consequences. I looked at my little girls one day. I said, I could never do that. God bless chaplains because I could never be a way. This is not what God's calling me to do. This is what God's calling me to do. I, I wouldn't be here if I was I'd followed this foolhardy thing. But I realized I wasn't willing to think of the long-term consequences. Number three, unwillingness to take advice. It's when we get our mind so set on something, we just close our ears to anybody else. I was telling a friend last week about um, a girl Corey and I are friends with from a long time ago. Um, wonderful Christian girl, and her faith was very important to her. But she had come from one broken relationship, relationship after another. And she got into a relationship with a guy from another faith, and uh, and we were saying, you know, he's a nice guy and everything, but how are you guys going to reconcile your relationship when you start having kids? And you know, it was a complete different different faith. And she, at that point, was so emotionally attached, she was unwilling to take advice. And now, unfortunately, um, there's a lot of struggles in that married relationship because how do you build a life together having completely different worldviews? Um, unwillingness to take advice. Three more. Number four, unwillingness to suspect yourself. Unwillingness to suspect yourself. We're so good at rationalizing things, aren't we? But ask yourself, why do I feel so strongly about this decision? Why am I leaning so heavily this way? This is where outside perspective can be so helpful, to have that other voice speak into your life. You know, Chris, I think you're rationalizing this. You're twisting the truth to benefit your selfishness. I've heard that before. (laughs) We are new creatures in Christ, but we are not Christ yet. Our hearts can be very deceitful. They can make us think things are right, Unwillingness to suspect ourselves. Number five, unwillingness to discount the personal magnetism of other people. Unwillingness to discount the personal magnetism of other people. Beware of putting too much stock in any one person. 
any one pastor, any one leader, any one author. I don't know how many times, you know, and I struggle with this. I, I love C.S. Lewis, and so I'll find something that C.S. Lewis wrote, and if it lines up with something I already think, well, that's as good as the Bible. No, it's not as good as the Bible. C.S. Lewis is a wonderful writer, had some great thoughts, but he's not right on everything. You know, another funny thing in, in theological studies is everybody's quoting Augustine. Augustine wrote so many things. You can find a quote to support whether you're Orthodox or Jewish or Evangelical or Catholic. Augustine said everything. Everybody quotes him. He's not right on everything. I'm sorry, Tim. Calvin's not right on everything. Maybe 99%. Maybe. <laughs> Respect is different than hanging your hat on every word that somebody says. So just beware that we think critically when we look to other authors and we look to other people we respect. And finally, and maybe one of the hardest things for people of our culture, is unwillingness to wait. Unwillingness to wait. God grows us in the waiting. He develops our character in the waiting. It, it builds us. The Bible is explicit and repetitive about the importance of waiting on God. Wait on the Lord. If He needs you to decide on something, He's going to let you know. And I was thinking about uh, the movie Bruce Almighty, and he's complaining about how God doesn't know what he's doing when he's running the show, so God gives... Jim Carrey's character, the power of God for one day. And so he's trying to impress his girlfriend, and he lassos the moon and draws it in to make a romantic setting. And it creates a tidal wave, like on the other side of the world, because of the gravitational pull of the moon. And it, it's funny, but at the same time, it's true because when, while we sit here and say, God, why don't you just act? Why don't you just tell me what to do? Why can't I move right now on this thing? We have no idea what the big picture is. We have no idea how my little action will ripple out and affect other people. You know, who knows, of course, is God. And that's why we wait on Him. After all of this, and by the way, I've just spewed a lot of things on you. I hate doing that. Um, I'll make this available to you in written form. Okay, But after all of this, what if we make a wrong decision? What if we miss His will? What if we unknowingly or purposefully get it wrong? Do it wrong? We all have. Does that mean we're off course forever? No. No. The promise of Romans 8.28 speaks loud and clear. God works all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. The good news is not just that Jesus forgives our sin, forgives our bad mistakes. The good news is that He takes all of that pain, all of the rotten mistakes, even the bad motives, even the outright sins, He can take all of that rework it and make something beautiful out of it. How he does it, I don't know. But it's a promise I hang my hat on and I commend it to you too. You are never 
too far gone. You are never too far off course. Even when you're spinning in an eddy, like junior high, um, Miss Positive Pants or whatever it was, yeah. She wasn't too far gone. God can redeem anything. This is the will of He who sent me. That of all He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Allow me to close this in prayer. And this is the prayer of Charles de Foucault. He was assassinated in 1916 in his hermitage in the Algerian Sahara. Father, I abandon myself into your hands. Do with me what you will. Whatever you may do, I thank you. I'm ready for all. I accept all. Let only your will be done in me and in all your creatures. I wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands I commend my soul. I offer it to you with all the love of my heart, for I love you, Lord, and so need to give myself, to surrender myself into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence. For you are my Father. Thanks be to God. Amen.